Thanks for joining us today. We're taking a couple weeks off, so this is a rebroadcast of an earlier show. If you want to listen to past episodes, go to working9tothrive.com. That's with the number nine. Hi, welcome to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing community, creativity, and work in any order. I'm your host, Janet McKenna Lowry. This is COVID recording. You will hear the sounds of the occasional dog, kids running around the house, and other unexpected little sounds that happen when you're outside of a studio. We talk about habits, self-management, time management, cognitive management, working with others, and this fall we're talking a lot about homeschooling, which I think will help people who are responsible for their kids' education in this very weird pandemic time. Next, we're going to have the second half of my conversation with writer Sage Engels. Sage developed a wonderful program for her kids and other homeschoolers to create relationships with people that are in elder care, which enriches the kids and the adults and is something absolutely beautiful to listen to. We also discuss the value of socialization and the quality of socialization, as well as the outcomes of testing and more testing and more testing. It's a understandable impulse that we seem to have socially, but it doesn't really play out in the kids. And we'll talk about that. Stay tuned. so neat to see the stats of how the seniors do with this kind of interaction versus people that don't get this kind of sort of stimulating interaction. Right. I think from what I've heard, their moods are better and they, they suffer less depression when they have regular contact, I especially mean, with young people. That would 100% make sense. It would just be like a question of saying, hey, look, <laughs> that right. is so lovely. And I know the kids love it. I mean, not just the cookies. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> they like meeting with the, the older people. the cookies. <laughs> right. Uh, no, they, they really love the people. And I mean, not just my kids, but some of the other the other families that got involved there one of them has a 12 year old daughter that had so much fun mm. she just loved the idea of of getting to visit older women at the she's also an extrovert and she lives in a family of introverts so it was just neat for her to get to be in a room where seven people were willing to talk to her all at once <laughs> <laughs> oh that's really i love i love the way that fit together oh yeah wow I hope we get to continue yeah yeah, that's huge. And and you're right. I mean, it's one of one of the really interesting things about when people talk about socialization is the the kind of socialization you had in school is a memory for you uh, for us, but the idea that it was it's relevant to current socialization, I think is borne out by, you know, the howling of say millennials that they can't make and keep adult friends and the idea, the socialization you have in school is very artificial. It doesn't, that's not adult socialization. It doesn't even prepare you for adult socialization. I just think it's really interesting that sort of uh, fantasy that that 
is somehow practice or 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 good or you know right. my question is what socialization yeah they're not do you know that at school they have they're not allowed to speak at lunch yeah they're supposed to be quiet yeah they're not allowed to speak to each other in class they're not allowed to speak to each other at lunch mm. the only time I didn't they're know about the lunch that's awful they're only allowed to speak to each other outside and that's one recess a day well, I know that I know that with with mine, they did. I don't know that they had the silence thing because mine went in and out of school. But in elementary school, they had two 10 minute recesses outside and 15 minutes at lunch. And the fourth grade teacher punished my reading disability daughter for not finishing quickly enough by taking away all of her recesses. And I found out that she hadn't eaten in about a month and a half because she would throw her lunch away to run outside so that she could finally like speak to other kids and run around a little bit. Yeah. 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 Oh, I'm so disgusted right now. Uh, it was, it, it wasn't great. It wasn't great. And he, he had the temerity to give me a lecture once on letting my child decide for herself what kind of education she wanted. And I was like, Mm -hmm. okay. Wow. <laughs> I have a 13 year old sister. Okay. So I'm 30 or I will be soon. And I'm not the oldest of my dad's children. And he currently has a 13 year old. So I learned from her about the not allowed to speak at lunch. Thing. Wow. They have an actual traffic light up on the wall in the lunchroom. And if the noise in the lunchroom goes above basically a whisper, the light turns yellow. And if it gets to red, they cancel recess after lunch. I can't, I can't find any, like, that doesn't, that, that so profoundly doesn't work for me. Like, we would never put up with it. No. I mean, it almost becomes that, oh, it is preparation for prison. <laughs> oh. We had in-school suspension. So if you got into a fight, yeah. like a physical altercation on the, schoolyard you might lose recess lunch recess yeah for a couple of days yeah but they Detention. did something similar yeah. they did something similar to my son so I told you that he had an IEP where they were supposed to have 60 minutes of of general ed time a day but the rest of the time was supposed to be in the separated classroom right the teachers on their own started sending him to the regular classroom for five hours a day mm. without a para and when that didn't work, because he was, he was getting overwhelmed, he was getting, you know, he didn't have enough support, and he would, you know, crawl under a table if something triggered him. Right. They called me and they said, okay, we're going to limit his transition. This is the language they said. And I understood that to mean he was going to be kept in the yes. leap room like he was supposed to be. Fewer transitions, right. Only taken, taken out for the specials he was supposed to go out for music and things like that that was all he was supposed to do well their actual practice of limiting his transitions meant that he did everything in his classroom all day long he didn't get any recesses oh. he, went to his desk. he sat at his desk the entire day and then got on the bus and went home and when i found out they had removed his opportunity to go out to recess right because they couldn't handle his behavior that was when I started to realize that there was a problem. Yeah. I, I cannot imagine how anybody thinks 
that limiting physical activity for a young boy is going to help his behavior in any way. Right. Any child. And, right? Yeah. I mean, I know maybe I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but I know some girls that could sit down for six hours a day and be happy. But I do not know any boys that do that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. It, it, there may be exceptions to that on both sides, but yeah, in my I, experience, and it's a given value. Yeah. Of, it's a given value of happy, because girls that are compliant right. and happy to be compliant are not necessarily happy girls. They're just right. willing to be compliant, <laughs> you know, or able. Sometimes it's even able to be compliant because a lot of kids who really wish they could be compliant and are you know trying so hard to be cannot for some reason and and um it's not set up for them i think the thing that gets me and i think this is one of the really interesting things about homeschooling as sort of this alternative is this is not how like a lot of other truly civilized and and functionally by like by functional metric better uh countries do things right you know i know finland they have a half a day and no homework right yeah and that's just one of the the ones that comes to mind yeah and they get way better scores and way better outcomes for their youth yep teachers are trained more paid more right oh no i've studied ken robinson and tony wagner i don't know if you know these people i don't who are they Tony Wagner wrote Creating Innovators. Oh, I think okay. This is his book. I, and, I think I've seen Ken, his TED Talk. Yeah, Ken Robinson has a few TED Talks out there too. You might recognize him if you see his face, but he has been advocating for years about how very horrible our system is, how the <laughs> we're failing tests, so let's throw more tests at them. Right. Like, <laughs> that, that logic just does not pan out. And how can we do better? The the better schools in the country 10 years ago were shifting to self-direction. Right. Giving young people more open-ended assignments and really letting them think. If you want a student to think better, you have to give them practice thinking. Right. Rather than the other way around that we do so much of, you get practice writing, you get practice doing the assignments, you get practice following directions. But do you get practice thinking and solving problems on your own not really no yeah and and that is the big difference for me that's one of the reasons that I'm I'm as strong a proponent of homeschooling as I am and even though my daughter who's now seven would really love to go to school because she thinks of it as this place where there's 20 girls she can go and play with yeah that's big brothers at home but I you know when I look at it I I just can't fathom putting her in and having her because she is so compliant. Mm. She would be one of those that just got crushed mm. in the wheel. And I cannot even imagine what she would do with the bullying in our town. Mm. I just. There was, you know, um, there's an Indian scholar and I'll have to look him up so I can mention his name before or after this, but he did a lot of research on that open-ended question technique and I read about it at first in Wired magazine in 2015 or 2017 because there was a guy in Mexico a teacher in Mexico who has pretty much no resources and the school is a cinder block square on a dump 
actually in a dump. The kids all work and their parents all work. They go through and they take like precious metals. They're essentially trash miners and they have one computer that only sort of works. And one of the girls sort of seemed to be saying answers that she seemed to be thinking up certain, like she wasn't really following the procedure and he was so interested in this, he started researching, found this Indian guy, and then started making small groups with his kids and saying, so here's a problem nobody knows the answer to. How do you solve it? And in a very short amount of time, I believe by the end of that academic year, his kids were winning the Mexican National Math Championships because they wow. know how to, first of all, how to cooperate with others. And second of all, how to sort of get to a shared goal and a shared answer and then self-direct how to find out the answers using the limited internet they had but also just looking it up in books and then calling people I mean they were using it it was so basic I mean it was so basic and they were just nailing it and then leapfrogging over the kids that had you know tons of access tons of tons of stuff at their disposal and I really love that I did a lot of self-directed. I also was not fully a, an unschooler. I could never make that leap of faith. Although now that my kids are older, I totally could have. I, I just didn't trust myself enough and trust them. But someone was telling me recently about a school that does another version of this. And it's, and it's an actual, it's a private school, but it's homeschooling, which is what you were talking about. They just ask the kids at the beginning of the year, what's the question that needs answering? Oh, oh, I like that. That's your That is your curriculum for the year. And you say to them, and it's so funny, my kids laugh so much when they hear me still say this to people. I used to have this phrase, which was, the state requires that you have some basic knowledge in these areas. And that's how I'd start this. It was all all my discussion about, please, I need something I can give the superintendent. The state requires. Mm -hmm. So the question idea is to say, okay, the state requires that you be, you know, doing some progress and growth in math and you're at this you're right here you do the progress and growth in reading and do the just list them off and then you say let's talk about how you will fulfill those requirements while answering this question that you want to know the answer to and I was like oh that I mean my kids kind of did it anyway but the idea of formalizing that at the beginning of the year and then yeah and then if they solve it quickly what's your next question <laughs> you know? I just love and then yeah yeah, yeah. I, and, and I have to say how much more is that like literally everything you have to do as an adult yeah. I was tech support for a couple years and I've done a lot of tech stuff we were all f- frequently frantically googling mm-hmm we knew what we were doing. We knew what questions to ask, but we did not have this at the top of our fingertips. We had to go find it now. <laughs> That's how you fix things as a tech support person? Yeah. You Google it. You do. <laughs> There's a fair amount of stuff. Yeah. 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 I think we should definitely have a course on our transcript that says Google 101. <laughs> yeah. How to assess what's good on Google. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that's really a portion of our, our learning right now is, if you look at on Google and you type in the wrong thing, how do you backtrack yeah. and get away from things you don't want to look at? That's that's definitely been on our curriculum. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I've talked to a couple of people, <laughs> sort of similar. I've talked to a couple of people who were considering homeschooling 
and got a little bit pushed back on it because they kept falling into the rabbit hole of very, very religious indoctrination-based homeschooling and did not mm-hmm. realize that you do need to use the word secular if you want to avoid that. <laughs> like, right. like and, it, it's out there, but you have to look. Curriculum. Yeah. The expensive curriculums have shut so many people up. Oh, I can't afford to do that. Yeah. Well, you don't have to. You don't. I have a really great thing I'll have to send to you. I found Oak Meadow on their website has an overview sheet for each of the grades from yep. one through K through eight. And it just lists subjects. Yep. It's what they cover in the first half of the year and what they cover in the second. And you can print that sheet off and use it as a checklist. In the in in the eighties and early nineties, and I think it sort of still exists out there, there was a guy who was one of the I think he was education, whatever, cabinet member for one of the Republican presidents. And he had this idea that the problem with school today is we don't have the back to the basics and all this kind of stuff. So he wrote a book that was about that. And then a bunch of people also, I may be conflating two guys, but but one guy ended up writing a whole series, What Your Blank Grader Should Know. And it's, I have the, he- those, yeah, yeah. it's heavy on sort of what you would pick up a 1930s textbook. And I'm sure it, a lot of it was informed by like his own upbringing and, and sort of primacy of Western culture and stuff. But the fact is it has a reasonable list and it's certainly right. every year I'd write my proposal based not on the book, on the table of contents of the book right? and be like, we'll definitely hit these points. Right. No, I, we definitely <laughs> use those. That's one of the books my kids go to when they, when they don't have anything else going on. Yeah. They'll go look in the, the book for their grade and go, oh, well, I don't know anything about that one yet. And then they'll put the book back on the shelf and go find something else. Right. To cover that subject. That's that. Now that's self-directed. <laughs> right. <laughs> they love those books because the, li- the literature sections are pretty good. Yeah. And, and they love the poetry and stuff like that. So that's been, that's been one of the ways we use that. And the history section. Right. I don't know if there are other sections. Those are the ones we look at. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they actually really like it. We've done that, and that has helped other people who don't know homeschooling right. to feel more comfortable about our, you know, success. Yeah. I have a, a an ex-mother-in-law who is deep into the school system. Yeah. And... She was very concerned for a while until she saw that I had those books on the shelves. And then she was like, oh, okay. My father was a principal of my elementary school and my aunt was his second grade teacher and my mother was a substitute teacher and then went off to a different school system to actually work. And of my five brothers and sisters, three of them are either one of them works as a, as a speech pathologist, but the other two are t- lifelong teachers. So it, it was the thing when I said I was going to homeschool. But in fact, my father surprisingly gave me all the support. He was like, oh, no, I get it. I get it. We've come a long way out of like what best serves the kids because the schools keep getting loaded with things that they're unprepared, underfunded to deal with. And then, you know, we sort of wonder why it's difficult. But I think the things that are really interesting to people thinking about pandemic homeschooling are those I can'ts. I can't do it because I don't have six hours a day to do it. I can't do it because I can't afford it. I can't do it because I'm working or a single parent or 
I don't know. There's just a whole bunch of I can'ts. I'm not a teacher. I hear that a lot. And you've actually addressed a couple of those. Not a teacher. You were talking about sort of bringing together seniors and kids. That's management. That's, right. that's not. <laughs> that's not. I don't do calculus. Degree. Yeah. I have never understood. I barely passed algebra. Like uh-huh. I'm, I'm just not math oriented. Uh huh. And so when my son was doing algebra at seven, I was like, oh, I'm going to need some help. <laughs> and I find people right. and Khan Academy and YouTube exist. Yeah. Yeah. They, not, and they didn't and they do. <laughs> right. So when, when I come across a question, you know, he was reading the cartoon guide to calculus and he came to me with it and he pointed at a symbol and he was like, what does that symbol mean? Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know. Let's go look it up. So we went on online and like I typed in that symbol or I found an image of the symbol yeah. and we looked it up and then looked up what it meant. He understood the answer and he went away. <laughs> and it was cool. um, but like people say that, you know, I, I have a friend who, who dropped out of high school and is now a mom and a, and a family person. And she was like, well, I didn't graduate high school, so I can't, I can't teach my kids. And I thought, you're one of the smartest people I know. Yeah. And you, you function fine. There is limit. You don't need to have a college degree to homeschool well. Yeah. You just need to know how to find resources that will help your child. And if you take 10 minutes and, and Google or even join a Facebook group or call somebody you know that homeschools, right. you will find that it's a lot easier. B takes a lot less time and C is far more possible yeah. than your expectations are leading you to think right now. Yeah. Oh, none of us would have done it. If, if it was that right. hard, none of us would right. have done it. I know. I feel like telling them I am lazy. <laughs> I am a very lazy person. If this was hard, I would not be doing it. No. <laughs> and, and the other thing is that like, I don't have a lot of time. I worked full time running a youth program for a nonprofit while, you know, making a plan for my kids homeschool and leaving it with a nanny to, to get them to do the work. The kids, a, there's not a whole lot that they need to do at any one time. Right. And B, they can do a lot of it on their own. If you have a plan. Yeah. And, and that can be as simple as buying two workbooks, one for math and one for English and like watching a documentary on the weekends. You know, I mean, there, it doesn't need to be a whole lot. Yeah. Because kids are always learning. Right. They're always making progress. So I don't know. I guess we take ourselves out of the equation a little bit. Yeah. And and kind of be the cruise director instead of the teacher with a ruler and a talk. Well, yeah. And actually, you bring up a really good point, which is um, I always like to call it leveraging the child's own interests. You get them on board. Uh, it, none oh, of yeah. This, none of this is about like one of the things that I've heard a couple of people say is my kid won't do work. I can never make them. Well, sure. But then that is the thing to talk about. Like, right. the state requires, or what are you going to do? Is it like, you know, kid, you've only got a couple of options here. And it's up to you right. to figure out which option of these fits you the best. Do you Maybe you do want to just have the teacher tell you what to do and, and sit in front of Zoom for six hours, and you're okay with that. But if you're not, then there's this, it's going to be one or the other. Mm-hmm. And, how, and how can we get you happy about doing 
one or the other. Like right. creating so it a was learning just, environment. It was really funny. My 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 ten year old, when he was five, I was trying to get him interested in doing something. And the only thing he ever did would do for me willingly was a Star Wars math workbook. Okay. You can find math workbooks or English work on anything. His his first English reading primers was Star Wars. Yep. You know, like it was you can find Star Wars mini readers. Like it's yep. <laughs> they're interested in it. You know, Dogman. He didn't want to read at all. He could. Yeah. He could read anything you put in front of him. But to sit and actually read a book was no way. <laughs> then I found Dogman and he was interested. And so I bought him all the Dogman. <laughs> I know a kid who's now a young man and what he wanted to do was read uh, manuals. And for a little while, there was a struggle about that's not really reading. And then his parents had this realization of, why is that not really reading? Like we, we're in, we're in opposition right now. Like we're the resistant ones. Right. He's made it clear that this is interesting to him and he'll read it. Mm-hmm. Why are we standing in his way? And the minute they got that, he read manuals. He could, right. fi- he could fix stuff. He, he would like take stuff apart, read the manual, fix it. He was reading, and ultimately, after a while, he actually did come to sort of find some kinds of, you know, fiction or or biographies, as it turns out, things that sort of felt more grounded to him. And it's like, you know, nobody's going to go after an adult and say, how come you're not reading more fantasy novels? How come you're just reading, like, your 300th biography? They're going to go, oh, wow, you really read these, like, massive biographies. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and and that's just what happened. You know, after reading enough Dogman, he realized that other books were as interesting. You just had to make the pictures in your own head. Yep. And boom, he started reading everything. Yeah. My daughter is seven and has been reading just fine. She struggled a little. I actually had to teach her to read, Mm. which I didn't have to do with my other kids. They just picked it up. So we sat and we practiced a little. And it it never came really natural. And then one day it did, right? Yeah. and seven and a half and her brain started making sense of it and now she could read but she still didn't want to and two days ago she picked up a she came to me over the moon and was like I get it I get it reading is cool and I was like really and she was like yeah reading I'm just gonna read now and I was like okay yeah you figure it out I think that if we just give them time I think there's so much pressure yeah in in homeschooling and and public schooling and private schooling alike, to get kids reading, yeah, like you have to be reading all the time. And she was required to read the instructions on her workbooks and things like that, so she was reading. And we read stories to her, but I didn't put a whole lot of pressure on her to read during free time. You know, she could listen to me read to her younger brother, do other things. She was still getting yeah content. But now it's going to change because she realized she could read stories yep. on her own. She loves, do you guys have an Alexa? We have an Alexa. No, no, not right now. <laughs> well, it's like a hockey puck. Yeah. In, yeah. And it, she can say, Alexa, read me a story and it'll just read her a story. Yeah. <laughs> she's, so yeah. she's been doing that for the last like six months. And she just went to bed with a book the other day and was like, oh, I can just read. Yeah. Because I don't restrict reading at all. They can read in their room as long as much as they want. Nice. 
screens and other technology get turned off at dinner time. But that was that was one that she's like, hey, I can keep reading if I do it myself. <laughs> two two of mine have reading disabilities. Actually, the the oldest and the youngest have have reading disabilities, and the middle one had not only none but was reading aloud to her sisters i remember one of my favorite moments was the three of them talking about something and my oldest looked at my middle child and said what does it even say and so my middle child read to her older sister and then said i don't understand what it means and so it was just like this lovely collaboration but my two my oldest and youngest daughters went through homeschooling and also did some schooling they were in charter schools, they were in public schools, and they homeschooled. And they struggled the entire time with reading and then realized that they could get nearly everything, an audio version of everything they needed. And well into college, they were using audio versions of what they needed. But by then they had sort of learned to self-advocate and then to sort of talk about figuring out your solutions. Rather than waiting to be given them, they were you know, going to uh, the resource departments and saying, what do you have for me? And what are some options and things like that? And now both of them read for pleasure. But I mean, they went all the way through college with alternatives that they were seeking out because it did not come easy until they were adults with adult brains. And, you know, it didn't harm them in any way. In fact, what harmed them was being told there was something wrong with them or not even explicitly told, but implied that there was something wrong with them. And they had very little use for that. And, And it might take them longer. But I mean, who was it? I think Dame Helen Murin is dyslexic. Right. So here's a woman whose entire life is scripts. Right. And she has a hard time reading them. (laughs) right and if she can get them read to her she probably memorizes them very quickly absolutely and i don't think we could call her unsuccessful at her career no (laughs) and i have i have i look back and i think man how much easier would my college have been if i had been able to get audio versions of the things i needed to do yeah one because i was working and i was driving a lot so i could have listened to my homework right and two because i think i i retain more of it if i listen to the story Mm mm-hmm and so, plus I have an, a strange, like, narcoleptic response to reading. Right. <laughs> I you end just up fall asleep. <laughs> falling asleep. So if I had 100 pages of college reading to do at a night, I might get through 20 before I needed a nap. Yeah. And then I'd wake up and I'd read 20 more and I'd fall asleep. Just because that, that was something that happened to my brain. So it would have been a lot easier if I could be cooking while I listened. Right, right. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about balancing work, community, and creativity. The tools are there. That's the other thing that kind of gets me sometimes when I hear arguments against this kind of self-directed learning. I think, well, only if you are assessing the tools as if it's 1850. Right. You know, you pointed out this before. Khan Academy exists. YouTube exists. But also, very few of us live in you know, a kind of, even the Amish don't live in the Amish world, but in this kind of completely stripped down historical village world, we live in a world where surrounding you are things to read. <laughs> you know? Always. Everywhere. Always. Everywhere. And so that 
already is an is sort of an impulse for kids to try to understand what on earth that billboard means and why that like lady is holding a hatchet who knows figure it out you can read it you know so it it is interesting that we sort of act like that world doesn't exist and that if they don't learn in this sort of traditional way of doing it they won't learn at all and i haven't seen that play out with anybody i haven't either in fact i have i have known people who were solid unschoolers and really did just didn't do anything they directed with their young people and they still were super smart yeah. you know capable young individuals and in some cases had good solutions for problems and and things like that so i'm not completely opposed to it i think that they definitely have to have a solid foundation in reading and math and mm-hmm. writing before they they get to a point where they're completely self-directed mm-hmm. and you know my my oldest son he he doesn't want to be in charge of all of it you know, he, doesn't, he doesn't want to have to have to figure it all out. He likes doing some of what I do, but he also likes studying the things he studies on TED Ed and, and other people. So he studies a lot of history from all over the world and mythology, and he studies politics and statistics. Mm-hmm. He finds that fascinating. Yep. And so, I mean, like, I'm I'm not real concerned. There's a lot of conversation going on because my five-year-old has decided he wants to own a toy store. Oh, very nice. I've never posed the question of like, what do you want to do with your time when you're an adult? Yeah. To me, that does not matter. And it's totally going to change. Not one of them is old enough to figure that out right now. Mm -hmm. But he's come up with, he's he's going to own a toy store. And that started the conversation with the others saying, well, what am I going to do with my time? And my oldest is like, I have no idea. (laughs) And I'm like, you're 12. You don't have to know. Yeah. But it like hit him that he didn't know what he wanted to do with it. And I was like, you don't even know what the world is going to need from you in right. years. So you have no reason to worry about this right now. But I think so much of our life is focused on that. Yeah. What do you, what kind of job are you going to get? And that kind of conversation is kind of behind the concern some people have about yes. homeschool. Yep. And if it, if that's really the concern, then, then I think we're missing the point of education. Yeah. Education is supposed to be, about helping our young people develop a mind that that will work to solve the problems that come up in their lifetime. Yeah. We're not doing that if we're focused on their grades or we're focused on what job choice they have. Yeah, or testing. Because <laughs> yeah. modern jobs don't really require that. Modern, right. jo- modern jobs, you know, we have so little manufacturing, they rarely require you to have the kind of timing and short burst thing either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I will say that I've often said to parents that if your kid is interested in a business, boy, you can get every single topic you need under business. You can, you know, write write out the whole business plan. You can figure out the math of, of what you need for a supply chain and how to make that, what profit is, what investment is. There is so many things you can do through that <laughs> it's like right teaching them excel spreadsheets at this age and budgeting yeah we're for, doing for for a toy store is like yeah. the perfect 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 thing i did i did read a book it's a little bit old now it's actually a really fun book called the uh the college fund wreath factory or the college fund wreath company and it was a family out i want to say minnesota or wisconsin homeschooling family, four or five kids. And one of them, one 
Christmas thought, you know what I want to do? I want to just make some Christmas wreaths and sell them. And then orders got to be too much and he had to figure out how to get employees. So he employed his siblings and pretty soon they ended up with a business that ran for all the way from him being in late elementary school through college and everything they made just went into the, and it was called the College Fund Wreath Factory, <laughs> or Wreath Company. Cool. It was a great read because it was really them going, whoa. And, and other families, I, there's a family I know that the kid was a bike repair mechanic yeah. and then figured out, you know what I mean? It's that he knew what metric and how to convert it pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, I knew one homeschooler I knew did all of our small engine repairs. Yeah, he, he ran his own business. His dad had like a mechanic shop and he started a small engine repair. So he started repairing like lawnmowers and, and chainsaws and stuff. Yeah. And that was how I met him. He was, his sister sold goat milk uh-huh. from her goat and he did small engine repair. And there was a, a family of like 10, but he was the oldest. And then his sister that had the goats was a little bit younger and they had already started their own businesses. My kids, what we've done so far is my kids are collecting returnables uh-huh. and we save them in the, in the garage. And every once in a while I pile all of it in the van and we take it over and they put it all in the right spots and get their tickets and go cash it. And then they have the option of anything they put in their savings account. I will double uh-huh. nice. and anything, they, anything they keep is theirs, yep. but that has led them to kind of like not just collect our returnables, but then ask the neighbors and collect them from, from down the street. And we, you know, if somebody comes on free cycle on the buy nothing group and says, Hey, I have some returnables. If anybody wants them, I let them know my children collect them and use them for their savings. My kids all have at least a hundred dollars in their savings account in their room and we have a garage full of pop bottles right now because nobody can return them, right? <laughs> but, but that's their business right now, and they yeah. understand. And then every once in a while, they'll also do a lemonade stand. Yeah, Just, I love keep, those. We don't do like an allowance because our, you know, that's yeah. just not their family work. Yeah. But but I help them with those projects, so they're working for it, and they understand. They understand the value of money. Yeah. They have really happily paid me for video games they wanted to buy on the tablets and you know my daughter now wants to take money whenever she goes anywhere because she realized she likes shopping (laughs) at seven (laughs) anyway no she's very happy to have money and she knows she has it and it's hers and she can make what decision she wants right it it makes me happy because they're getting skills and practicing but there's no there's no uh risk involved no no although i will say we did have a really fun time when the kids were older doing um sort of demystifying money and making an investment yep you know everybody and and again it was effortless in that it boy they wanted to know about it they really wanted to know about it but then it meant but i don't know like i know basic math but i don't know what this is telling me so then you're gonna have to go find out what that math is telling you, what, what does that mean? And, oh, it just got better and better and better until, you know, they bought something, they own a stock together. Wow. <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah. And, and that used to be hard. You used to have to get a broker. You used to have, have to have some 
enormous amount of money just to qualify at all. And it's mm -hmm. not anymore. You you have eTrader Vanguard and it's free and you can, you know, collect till you have a thousand bucks and then you decide together you're going to buy Disney stock and you mm -hmm. have two shares or whatever. It's amazing. That's you know? Yeah. Yeah. And at no point did I have problems making my kids be interested in it. Right. Because <laughs> you don't have to when they're, when they've found something that's interesting and money interests everybody, right? Money is interesting. And, and then it becomes a whole question about why is it, why is it scary? And, and, you know, there's a lot of different, different aspects of that that are worth unpacking before right. you're 40 thank you very much <laughs> really i know how many how many adults do you know that know anything about investing or yeah yeah my kids have, have used money because they are interested in it to learn decimals every one of them that was you know once you once they realize that it's the same thing as dollars and cents which they already understood they're yeah. like oh we're good like whole dollar pennies. And it. investing got into a really interesting discussion about tulips in the 1600s in our house. Right. And then we you're and then you're talking about history, and then you're talking about the middle class, and then you're talking about Dutch art, and then you're, I mean, it just it just yeah. it, it. I love the way that it's more organic in terms of like how this goes to that, and that goes to this, and that goes to this, and you turn around and you go, oh, in the last 20 minutes we have covered. Mm -hmm. <laughs> monetary yeah. policy economics politics history math <laughs> it's so wonderful how how it can just flow that way yeah you know this summer my husband is a musician and we have a ukulele a trumpet piano six guitars you know like everything's around yeah all the kids understand how to use them and and can and if they want lessons or something like that, we can do it. But they mostly just play with them. But he wrote a song while we were at vacation and everybody fell in love with it. And we started having everybody, you know, work together to write additional verses. Yeah. And it was just really fun to watch everybody learn about rhyming and language and word choice and mm. melody and, you know, flow and it was super fun. Like you can learn so much from doing something small. And hilariously, music is math. Right? <laughs> yeah. My my youngest is five and he was learning about, you know, notes, half notes, whole notes, quarter notes. And I'm like, well, there's your fractions. There's your fractions. <laughs> I know a family that drew them on the Legos. Yeah. I that just blew my mind sharpie that mine too mine too Sharp oh, sharpie on legos the duplo they it would work so well with duplo yeah yeah and you got them in your hands which is also really fun well this has been a terrific discussion i before i go let me ask you what do you wish you had like known before what 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 would you not that you can shortcut people they they you know they're gonna have to go through their own journey but what do you wish you'd known before you did this I really wish I had known how easy and simple a progress report could be. Mm -hmm. The, the ahem.org has a sample on there and it's really comprehensive and easy. Yep. I didn't find that until this fall um, when I was trying to turn in my stuff for last year. And I am so pleased. I also wish that I had known to connect with other families on Facebook. I had never really done that. Yeah. Well, Facebook is the medium that I use, but you can, as long as you're connecting somehow yeah. with people in your area, 
other families all have already solved a lot of the problems and all you have to do is ask, Hey, how do we do that? Mm. And they have, they have answers. Yeah. I also wish I had trusted a little bit more in my kids. I'm, I'm doing it more and more as we go, but I, I wish I didn't push so hard on, on some of the early stuff. Yeah. You know, we did, we did two pages of handwriting every day when my oldest was in kindergarten and it's so funny. It's almost like in our, in our, cause I did too. It, it's, it's almost like in our urge to not screw it up. We screw it up a little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I made him hate handwriting at that time, which did not help. <laughs> what can you do? We're moving on and he's, he's very happy to do cursive now. So it's right. he's the one that brought it into the house. <laughs> Yep. Oh, that's terrific. Well, thank you so much for being for being with me today and for talking about your experiences. I really appreciate it. This has been delightful. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful getting to know you and, and talking about this. I hope um, to hear this one and, and any other podcast you do because it's interesting. The late lamented neurologist Oliver Sacks wrote a series of terrific books His books can really inform the way we look at our kids and each other. And the one that comes to mind today is called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. So as a neurologist, Sachs specialized in strange neurological disruptions, so unusual diseases, unusual syndromes, that kind of thing. And the title is, they're all short stories. The title is about a guy who has ceased to be able to understand his, his brain can't fathom faces anymore. Arguably, Sachs's greatest contribution was his sense of mercy toward mentally compromised patients and his dedication and focus to potential. When we talk about potential, far too often, it is in a context of disappointment. You had so much potential. You're a disappointment to me. This is a classic, surefire way to undermine our relationships with our kids. We never had any business piling on expectations of them that were counter to their own path in life. Regardless if an interest and a talent for something, say trumpet, they were at the top of their game at 14 playing trumpet and they lose their interest. One reason they may lose interest is if we become too interested in it on their behalf. Meanwhile, we often feel owed for the money we put in the trumpet lessons, for the support we gave them during the time that their interest was high, for the driving that we did for them to various competitions or orchestra. We can get way too invested in something that is not fundamentally our life. So the context that Oliver Sacks uses for potential is so deeply beautiful and moving. I can't even tell you. You got to read the books. They're very easy to read because they're short stories. You can pick it up, put it down anytime you want. They're also a nice size if you want to listen to them on audio. 
what he always did was emphasize coming from a place that I think is unusual in medical practice of deep respect and love for this individual, no matter how compromised. So when he looked at, for example, one of his patients is extremely neurologically compromised by autism. The term that was used to diagnose this individual was idiot savant. They are extraordinary at one thing and non-functional at everything else. So this was an individual who couldn't prepare his own meals, couldn't live on his own, couldn't drive, couldn't take a bus. And all of the help he was given came from a place in which he was not enough, where he wasn't living up to his potential in some way, where he was a disappointment to people. So all of his days were spent trying to teach him how to count change to get on a bus. And there is a place for that, but it is not a full-time job. He had so much true potential inside of himself if only someone would look. So Sachs does look, and he says, what are you good at? Well, this young person was, had memorized volumes and volumes and volumes of a musical encyclopedia. So Sachs asked, who could benefit from this? And Sachs made a connection at a local orchestra, and they hired this young man to be their, essentially a living reference book. And they would send a car for him. So he doesn't need to know how to do change. Instead, his days are spent being valued. Who doesn't want that? Mentally compromised or not, who doesn't want a life where we're valued for the things that we love and that we do well? That is no less important in a neurologically uncompromised or neurotypical young person or an old person. <laughs> or anybody in between, <laughs> or a child. There's, there's no, no reason to not celebrate the things at the core of these individuals that we have relationships with, and it builds those relationships. In the end, this patient of Oliver Sacks, many of his other skills improved to a point because he was now being respected by others and because he now had meaning in his life, it gave him the cognitive space to be able to improve other skills. We learn better when we're happy and we're happy when others don't treat us with contempt. And being eternally disappointed in people for what we decided was their potential is holding them in contempt for their real skills, for their real abilities. So if you read The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, first of all, you come away with this, this overwhelming knowledge that it's amazing that any of us are functional at all. The ability to function effortlessly in this world is not a guarantee for any of us. But the second thing that Oliver Sacks' books point out is that we can look at the people in our world and give them the grace of asking them, eliciting from them how they want to contribute to the world. 
Another story from the book is about a woman who was born into an affluent family, blind, and she was treated like a child her entire life. And as an older person, her caretakers died. And now she was in an old age home and had been tested extensively neurologically, and they couldn't find anything wrong with her other than the fact that she was blind. But her hands didn't work. They were just useless lumps, is what she called them. Sachs worked with her and had the nursing staff stop doing so much for her. So the first thing was food. They moved things a little bit further away from her and where she expected on the table. They put down cutlery. They did not feed her on demand. And she got hungry. And she demanded to be fed. Now she was hungry. And they said, I'm just taking care of something right now. I'll be with you. They didn't starve her. They simply extended the period of time between when she asked for help and when they gave it. And soon enough, she got impatient and annoyed, found a spoon, and started to feed herself. Her useless hands, her useless lumps, weren't useless at all. She did have a deep-seated belief given to her by her family and her community that she was useless, that she was just meant to be fed, meant to be a baby her entire life. Her discovery of her use of her hands changed this woman's life in, I think she was in her mid or late 70s, because none of us are finished until the day we die. Not only was she unfinished, her self-worth, her sense of joy in herself exploded in goodness. She couldn't get her hands on enough tactile things, an entire world that she was living in she didn't know about. One of her senses had just been omitted based on a set of beliefs that she had grown up with. Ultimately, she becomes a sculptor, an extremely talented sculptor. She does not need to professionalize that. She doesn't need to become an award-winning sculptor. She doesn't need to make a living being a sculptor. She does it because it is so deeply enriching to her world. And her favorite thing was to feel people's faces and then recreate them in clay. And she does that happily until the day she dies. That is such a heartwarming story because we have a culture in which you have to be doing things because you'll be rewarded in some way. And you have to be doing things based on what other people told you was possible. And this story subverts both of those things. What's interesting about it is that if you do want your kids to be happy, successful, and I use that as a hyphenated word because I don't think you're truly successful if you're not happy. I actually don't think you can be fully happy if you're not successful in the way that you define success. In other words, it's very difficult to be happy as a truly starving person. 
I was going to say artist, but not necessarily, but as a starving person. So for example, I've worked for many, many nonprofits and the people running them were doing it out of a sense of mission. They had a certain amount of professional happiness. They had a certain amount of personal happiness, but there was an aspect of successful that often eluded them. I remember one of them saying to me, you're not going to get rich in this job. As if anyone cared that they got rich, we were there for the mission. What we wanted was just a sense of stability and the ability to have a decent enough quality of life. And I don't think that is an extreme standpoint for anybody. Do the work, get paid for the work, be able to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So happy, successful. And the funniest thing about this is that if you fully support your kids in building meaning into their lives, in becoming happy, successful, it will, first of all, help you do that. Second of all, build your relationships with them. And third of all, they stand a much, much, much higher chance of achieving even what the world and society would consider success. Simply because they're not lugging around the baggage of parental disappointment and expectations, and they are instead freed to come into and pursue their own potential. And everybody, everybody, a severely compromised man who's only able to do one thing but does that one thing phenomenally well, or a 78-year-old woman who thinks her hands are lumps. Everybody, till the last breath that they draw, has potential. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number nine, to access show notes, find resources, and join the conversation. Thanks for listening.